Our guest on this latest episode of Soundtracking is a world-famous frontman with a genuine passion for score. The wonderful Simon Neal is guitarist and lead vocalist for Scottish rockers Biffy Clyro. On the Biff! Whose most recent album, A Celebration of Endings, went straight to the top of the UK album charts, and quite rightly so. But as you're about to hear, he really does know his stuff when it comes to movie music too. Man, do we cover some ground. He also scored Balance Not Symmetry, and it's with a cue from Jamie Adams' film that we begin, entitled Navy Blue. Oh, you too. Thanks for having me on today again. Pleasure. Have you been all right, Edith, though? Been fine, you know, just kind of cracking on, really. Just, you know, keep... Being as busy as always, has everything just shifted to to home, basically, for you? Yeah, it's quite interesting. It's just, it was kind of, I had a slight panic as soon as kind of lockdown happened, going, like, I spent a fortune on, like, random bits of kit to have at at home. So I was, like, ready for anything. And, yeah, I've kind of had this little makeshift studio thing that I've been using for all sorts of stuff. Been amazing, actually, yeah. I think the weirdest one I did was um, I had to host the International Press Conference for Tenet, the new Christopher Nolan film. Yes. So there was, like, him from home. So I, uh, they sent me a black drape that I had to, like, attach to the ceiling. So it was, like, because uh-huh. everybody had the same background. So it was all black. And um, it was him, John David Washington... Robert Pattinson, Elizabeth Debicki, Kenneth Branagh, Emma, his producer and wife, and Ludwig Gorenson. It was amazing. Oh, I mean, I'm sure it's weird enough when you're doing that as your normal job, but when you're sitting in your own house doing that, it's like it's slightly surreal. Like, as you can hear, like, as I can hear Spike coming in the door going, no, don't come in! <laughs> there was one time, actually, here, I was doing a BAFTA queue and I could sense a presence from my right eye, and I was just like, just kind of glanced across and he just got out of the shower and he was just stood there naked. So I was just like that. I just had to turn and go, not right now. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having um, me. Though. It's uh, such a pleasure. 
you're joking. It pleasures mine. Tom sends his love, by the way. He's he's downstairs in his man cave doing various oh, bits and bobs. How's he getting on? Is he sleep, keeping busy? It's that thing, I guess, where you've been, you know, that, that kind of forced nature of where we are has kind of encouraged him to do... He's got like three or four different projects on the go that he would normally not really have had time to to kind of focus on. You know, it's been liberating and one, I don't want to spend too long talking about it, but it has been felt liberating in some aspects, hasn't it, Edith? Yeah. We can't rely on what we've normally been doing. And a lot of it's so habitual. That's what you realise. It's just the, the kind of habit and the ritual of what we do that's kind of trained us into this way of living. And actually, when we're taking a step back, yeah. Anyway, you look well, you look healthy. Oh, so do you. I was at one point we were actually thinking about well, I was I was floating the idea of round of going, why don't we try and hire a tour bus for like a month and like <laughs> see if we can go uh see if we could actually go somewhere like we were like do you know what I mean? Just without having the live shows, but just kind of travel around. Oh, you must be missing it then. That's quite a leap of faith that a tour bus. <laughs> Oh, the boys would love that, though, wouldn't absolutely, they? Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Anyway, I know your time is precious, so thank you so much for, for coming to do this. It's wonderful to have you on because, I mean, not only is the, the new album's brilliant, congratulations, it's so, so brilliant. And, and it's been amazing to watch you as well through this whole sort of weird period that we've just been talking about of just kind of, just constantly give to fans in a way as well. You've made this connection, like you made it immediately in terms of you were just always... You seem to be ever present for fans in terms of, and I guess it's a way of helping you cope with the situation, but also just kind of, you know, feeling like you're there. And that's been lovely to watch. I think that was it. It's just for all of us. I just, the connect, the connectivity we have and that intimacy we have with each other, or not even intimacy, just like strangers, even that kind of contact you have. And I just, I was just felt really isolated as everyone did the first couple of weeks. And it was as much for me to feel like, there was people out there and so it was kind of this circle you know big hug circle hug you know that hopefully I was people were getting something from me singing the songs and I was certainly getting something from people's nice comments and knowing they're watching and yeah I think that's the one good thing about what we've been going through I think ironically we're, we're as separate as we've been but I feel more of a connection to certain people and and, and than I have done probably in years, you know, yeah. because we don't slow down long enough normally, especially with this world that we live in and what we work in. It's like, it's always on to the next project and you, you don't have time to reflect. And I, I do think it's, it can be unhealthy to over-reflect, but I think the fact that we're all being forced to reflect yeah. is a really healthy thing, you know. Yeah. Well, I haven't said that, you know, I'll t- ask me again <laughs> in three months. You know? <laughs> But you got, um, I mean, the, this this live show that you you guys put on, what was that, a fortnight ago? Was yeah. About two weeks ago. That was extraordinary. And it was just... Thank you. Yeah, it was so great. That must have been... I know how kind of how involved you you all are kind of, you know, creatively in terms of the whole thing and the videos. And and all, so many of your videos are like little short films in a way as well because there's such a almost a beautiful um, like narrative interpretation of the lyrics and the feeling and the emotion and stuff. Yeah, which is- I think that's important, especially for our band. You know, we're like a, a live band. That's what we do. And I'm sure as, as Tom, your husband, tells you, you know, it's like once you've done a few performance videos, you kind of feel that you've, you've done it and, and then the videos become replaceable. So for me and the boys, it's always about waiting for that kernel of an idea that just feels like it could become something that kind of potentially stands alone. You know, a music video shouldn't just be an advert for the song. You know, I think it yeah. can be. It should be a piece of art that can stand alone. And and actually, our last video, uh, which I did a few weeks ago for a song called Space, it, 
I don't know if it's cause of lockdown and everything, but I, I decided to learn some choreography and to do some underwater kind of acting. It was this, it was the same team that they just finished filming that Artemis Fowl underwater. Oh wow! Did a bunch of kind of um, there was a few other things that like they did uh, maybe some Bond stuff. Not no time to die, but some previous stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was you know I felt like I had to bring my A game, you know. In good company. Well, absolutely. <laughs> you know, um, when we were young and still in love. We didn't care what we were made of. Our eyes were set on a distant sun. It was shimmering gold. Then slowly, one by one, we carried our past and cradled the storm. We tried to conceal the scars we wore, cause we couldn't show. Show. I get lost sometimes with you, I am fine. I get lost, so I'll follow the light to your heart. Will you wait? Will you wait for me? There's always a space in my heart. I'm still caught in your gravity. No But it's just, I've really enjoyed the, the challenge of trying to, with that show at the Barrowlands that we did, it was trying to kind of create that, the energy you have at a gig and the, the connection and that intimacy I was talking about, but without actually having people there. And again, I felt liberated trying to, you know, just the act of when you step on a stage, normally you're facing the front, you're not facing each other. Yeah. And even just being able to rip that apart and go, well, well, there's no front. You know what I mean? Like, we can move the camera where we want. We can keep things dynamic. And and, uh, and it was good. It took up a good few weeks of the lockdown for me, just immersed in it. So I was really pleased when it came together. And then, of course, with the pressure of trying to do it live. Yeah. <laughs> was all those great ideas could have really went down, down the, the swanny if... Uh, if we hadn't played well, but I think again because we hadn't gigged for a while, we were kind of on on edge and that right amount of nerves. Hey, hey, hey.
really nice actually because I was doing the um, we did like a kind of best of transmit this year because obviously none of the festivals were able to take part and it was it was lovely to kind of revisit that um, I mean mind blowing performance from from that that you guys did when you step out on a stage are you are you aware of how big the crowd is because over the years you know I've seen you play so many venues and so many sizes of crowds as well and for me watching you your performance is is there's always so much energy, whether you're playing to like, uh, you know, a little tent or a little venue to like, you know, headlining a massive music festival. You always just give it everything. Are you aware of how many people are there when you're sort of stepping out and this enormity of it? I think I used to be slightly more aware. I think I think that's how we managed to balance it because we, we do genuinely take every gig as seriously as the last or the next one. And and whether we're playing to 500 folk or, or 50,000 folk, it should be the same. You should have, hopefully, have people leaving with that same, the thrall of having been at a gig and, and the kind of the bruised and the battered feeling that you've been through something together with that of your friends or everyone else. So I think that's how I managed to avoid the nerves too much because if you start thinking about it, it's so unnatural for anyone to be standing in front of that amount of people. Never mind yeah. jump around with your shirt off. You know? <laughs> Sometimes it does feel very bizarre, but but it's it, again I keep using the word liberating, but it's it kind of when we walk on stage with our shirts off and everything, there's this feeling of things can't be more ridiculous than they are right now, and it oh. and it just helps make us feel free and and it helps make us feel that we're 19 years old again. But <laughs> but there's definitely a wee trick of the brain. You kind of trick your brain into those shows to make it feel like it's natural and maybe you know there's nothing weird about it. And then yeah. afterwards, I normally have a bit of an hour where I'm like. <laughs> Oh, did that just happen? You what know? was that? Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's the, it's the same, you know, when you're doing your work as well, it's like you, you can't think really about what's happening when it's happening or else yeah. things will kind of fall apart. You're kind of doing what you do. You have that kind of suspend your disbelief in the moment, you know, for yeah. want of a better phrase. And, and it, that's how you kind of get through it. And, and it's focusing on what your, your kind of skills are and your talents and where you feel comfortable. So, it's so been that, in the moment as well, isn't it? It's been in that moment and fully just kind of embracing. Yeah, because again, it's like if you pull out too far, you can just see the context of things that can either seem way more serious than it is or, you know, or less serious than it is. I just think it's, you, you kind of train your brain. That's what I kind of learned over the years is I've managed to kind of control my nerves and a little bit and my ego at certain points. Maybe my wife wouldn't quite agree with that. <laughs> But, you know, like you just try and keep yourself in as much when you even keel because, you know, we all know people that have devoted their life to music and things and it's such an up and down life. Yeah. You know, your, your, your highs are incredibly high, the lows are low. And, and if you don't kind of have that, have that steadiness, it's really easy to kind of come off or fall off and, and suddenly you don't have an anchor anyway, anywhere. And, and for us, the fact that we've been friends since we were like seven or eight years old, that really helps because if things get too ridiculous or too over the top, we, you know, we have that look at each other like, oh, really? Really? Are we going there? You know? <laughs> yeah, but it's so important as well. That's so important. Before a celebration of endings, prior to that, the, the album, which was a real surprise for a lot of people in terms of you suddenly like, oh, here's a new Biffy Clyro record. But... Balance Not Symmetry was this was a soundtrack to this beautiful film that Jamie had made. And I just wanted to talk a bit about, about that and, and whether that was a different writing process for you in terms of and how you came to be doing that. It's actually a really unusual thing because as much as it's a soundtrack, for, for this project, I was approached by the director, Jamie Adams, who had a kind of outline for a, a rough story. 
and he just asked me if I wanted to write some songs. But the whole premise was that we would create the record first and that that would feed into the movie. Yeah. It made it probably closer to just creating a record. You know, it was probably closer to that than soundtrack type stuff because that, that was the birth of the, of the kind of idea and where the, the, the movie was going. So it definitely felt slightly more song-based, but it, but it was really liberating to, to be able to work in a, in a genre-free palette, you know, not worried about everything needing to be guitar, bass and drums. To, to kind of immerse myself in soundtracks. And I know a lot of musicians talk about that. We, we all want to, you know, some of us presume that we're going to be brilliant at it without putting in any work, you know. <laughs> and I feel, I feel fortunate that I've seen like Clint Mansell work up close. I've seen Danny Elfman work up close. Wow. And when you see the amount of energy, you know, time, effort, everything that's put into each project, you know, it, it, it's, it's phenomenal. You have to live and breathe a project. And, and that's what I was doing with Balance, but sadly it came before the movie was made. Yeah. So there's probably a few things I've learned from that, that project that maybe I would change and, and, and kind of tweak for next time. attempt at kind of soundtracking anything was at university actually we'd the I did like a kind of theatre course kind of thing for a little while and and it was typically student stuff it was about like child abuse you know like nice easy easy subject matter you know and, and I did I did this kind of warped loop of of like the sound of kids playing in a playground and, and yeah and I, I was too young to kind of know what I was doing then and it was really just experimenting but that was a moment where I really fell in love with an outside spark stimulating something, you know, and, and mm -hmm. as a band, as a songwriter, normally the spark comes from you. You kind of sit, you mess around and a song will come up. 
but I really loved having something forcing me into a certain kind of emotion in a certain place. And, and that's what I've seen from seeing proper composers and soundtrack artists work over the years is they really, it's, it's so immersive. You, you can't half ask anything like that. You know, you really need to understand the motivations of the characters, what the movie's trying to achieve. And, and it can sound so much more subtle than that. But, but as I say, when you see these people work, you're like, all oh, right, okay, it really is. Every moment is completely considered. And, yeah. and you also have to be brutal yeah. when you're soundtracking. Like you really need to be brutal in yourself, you know, because it's only one part of a massive moving machine. And if, if the visual changes, then it doesn't matter how good that theme was. You know, that just gets removed. Yeah. And, and um, I was actually, I was reading about a movie the other day and the soundtrack, I forget who it was. It might have been Jonathan Jonas, Johansson. Yeah. And he said he'd actually, when he listened to this song back, uh, this movie back, he realised it needed no music and he removed almost all of his music. That's, that's a brutal thing to do because it can be so cutthroat as well. From speaking to so many composers, you know, he'd kind of, it was really interesting speaking to Harry Gregson um, Williams last week and he was talking about coming through Hans Zimmer's kind of school of, um, of training and how one of the first things that Hans said to him was like, you need to develop a hard skin because, you know, you're going to be, you're going to be told stuff's not right. You're going to be told to change things, and it's mm-hmm. and you're not facilitating your connection or your talent. You're facilitating the film and the story and the characters and the performance. And I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, to take you have to kind of take your identity out of it, and it's really an egoless place to be because most people coming from a band perspective, it's kind of like your ego is at play most of the time. I mean, I love. I think Hans Zimmer's been. Um, I know he's an obvious person to reference, but. When I, as I was kind of in my 20s, there was a song from the Thin Red Line called Journey to the Line that my friend put on it. And it's been so, it's been copied so many times over the years, you know. <laughs> I mean, why not? It's a beautiful piece of music.
that was the, that was the first time we kind of heard a sound piece of music from a soundtrack out of context. It really moved me. I, I mean, I still haven't actually seen the Thin Red Line. I mean, I, I like Terence Malick, but for some reason, I just haven't visited mm-hmm. that movie. And maybe part of it's because I cherish this piece of music so much that I kind of I don't want it to change how I feel about it. But that was the moment where I really kind of fell in love with just with the unfurling and the unraveling of like of soundtrack music and how it can take you by surprise. And um, I mean, one of my favourite Zimmer soundtracks is actually for Dunkirk. I mean, that was one of the most intense oh my god and my heart race you know i mean i guess it's kind of like, like it's i found a new vein in my neck i didn't know yeah, i had i know i was sitting in your cinema like that you know like two minutes in because it's right from the get-go you know and you're just and it just wraps up in this beautiful way I just I do like the way I know that Hans Zimmer has a wonderful team around him. Yeah, and he's cultivated so much incredible talent. You know, that's what's as you see speaking to Harry last week, and you know Craig Armstrong from the, you know there's there's so many wonderful people, and I'd say a good few Scottish yeah Scottish composers coming. Yeah, Lord Balfe as well. Lord who, Balfe, yeah, unbelievable. Yeah, I think he's a Hans. Yeah, speak. absolutely. I mean that last Mission Impossible score that he did for the, I can't remember what it was called now, the last one, Fallout, was Mission Impossible Fallout? That was amazing. interesting as well when you when you come on board to something that's already got a presence so obviously Mission Impossible has you know that theme and you can't have a Mission Impossible theme that doesn't incorporate that somewhere so it's kind of interesting to think about how you have to kind of reinvent it or shift it or you know what I mean but it's but I mean they're just it's amazing I think it, it must be such a nice challenge you know for you know to take on something so iconic as you say because it needs to maintain that essence and have that essence of why it's so special but equally if you don't twist it enough it's like well what's the point you know mm-hmm. and then um, but but I, do, I feel like like see the the soundtrack to Mandy the other year with which had Jonathan Johansson and Son the doom metal band yeah
you had Vox Lux, Brady Corbett, which had Sia and Scott Walker. Like, I really love the fact in the last few years there's been these real strange kind of combinations of unsettling, you know, sweet music with something completely unsettling in it. It's really kind of stimulated me. Maybe it's because, it, again, it's coming from a more band side of things and that's yeah. incorporated, you know. I just feel like like the Mandy artwork and everything, the double vinyl for Mandy's absolutely beautiful. But I, just, I love the way things are, I love the twisting of it all. You know, I mean, I grew up in the 90s, so for me, soundtracks were... Like, I remember Judgment Night, which was a rap metal soundtrack. You know, I came in from that, like, like Gummo had a black metal soundtrack. Kids had, like, the folk implosion. You know, so I kind of came from those soundtracks of, like, where it was 10 or 11 artists kind of, you know, representing that. Yeah. And, and then I slowly made my way to actually the soundtrack side of things, you know. And, I mean, some of that 90s stuff where they would just get bands to do covers and, and bring their own songs. I discovered so many bands on those records, you know, because... I trust the movie makers, you know. Absolutely, because it takes you in a different way to discover stuff. I remember um, a film called Colours with Sean Penn and um, Robert DeVaro, I think it was. And I was just like, I I would listen to that non-stop. Yo, let's do this. Psychopath talking, king of my jungle, just a gangster stalking, living life like a firecracker, quick as my fuse. Been dead as a death, back the colors I choose. Red or blue, cuz of blood, it just don't matter. Sucker died for your life when my shotgun scatters. Colors, the gangs of LA will never die. Just multiply colors, 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 colors. I mean, I only saw the film once, but the soundtrack just could not get enough. You just lodged in your brain, and that's it. The, the best kind of the best soundtracks doing you. In, it's maybe unless you're kind of interested in music and things, you maybe don't quite appreciate how powerful a part of mm. your visual it is. You know, a lot of people just they think of mu- mu- uh, movies as a visual form and kind of forget the sound design and the soundtrack and even even things. I mean, Tenet. Uh, you know, I really, really dug Tenet. I've been reading people who are annoyed a little bit the sound. They can't hear certain things and stuff. And it's, <laughs> it's kind of like, is that, that's maybe the purpose of that. Absolutely. You know, meant to be, you know. Different perspective and things, and it hits people in different ways. But 
I don't want to ask too much about Tenet, yeah. but did, did you did you go to the cinema to see it? Yeah, I saw it at the IMAX at the South Bank, and there was only like 15 of us there, and it was the first time I'd been back at the cinema, so it was a kind of double whammy. I love Nolan, and I was really excited about him working with Ludwig Göransson as well yeah. for the first time. And it's really interesting what you were saying about balance, not symmetry, because so he took a meeting with Christopher Nolan, and way before that he even started filming the film and sort of said to him, told him about the idea and then asked him to go away and write something. And so he came back kind of 10 days later and he had to bring it on CD. Oh my God, that's old school. Yeah. He had to go and like source a CD burner. He didn't have one. <laughs> I made it. Yeah. So then he took the CD at Christopher Nolan's house and, uh, and, and that was the kind of deal done, basically. It was like, okay. And then from that point on, he was part of the process, even before they started filming. See, see, for someone like Nolan, a director to have such a specific idea as well, you know, to obviously, he obviously knew Ludwig's work, but see, see to be able to hear a theme or a, an idea and know it's going to span over a full, you know, like I love that kind of, because best, the best art isn't really a democracy to a certain extent, you know, like I, I kind of don't mean to say, but most best art is like someone is in charge, pointing at a direction and everyone kind of comes in and you, you focus on that. And because sometimes I guess, I mean, I remember, like, I sound like I'm name dropping here. I, I, like, one of my friends knew knew Danny, Danny Elfman, so I felt lucky. I've, I've hung out with a few Amazing. times. The funniest thing he ever said was, "Oh yeah, I've been told that I need to be more Danny Elfman." <laughs> and it's like, and there's someone who's had 30 years or whatever of doing his thing, you know, and he's still, he, you know, it's still people say, mm, "Could it just be a little bit more like you?" And he's like, "Ah." <laughs>
makes me feel better, you know, way further down the way down the wrong of the ladder, you know, that that's even someone like Danny Elfman still putting up with that, can it, you know, could it be more you and it's like, yeah. What you meant to do with that, but I know that for a lot of composers, the the temp track can be like a sort of uh, you know a kind of vicious uh, a vicious thing. But I kind of wondered whether a temp track, when it's your own, when it's actually their music, is that a kind of hard thing or an easy thing? When they've got your kind of previous music on there, and you're going, I don't want to do the same thing. I don't want to repeat what I've already done as well. Do you well, know what I mean? It's, That's... it's like demoitis. We call it demoitis when you you know you like record a song for the first time, and just you listen to it so many times that suddenly that becomes the version. You know whether it's it's a good version or not. And you're right. You know I think I think it's more the produ- producer side. You know I guess when it becomes a huge movie, there's it's a kind of committee of people at a certain point, and perhaps there's people that maybe don't understand the kind of creatives, but they're just the bottom line people that are maybe a bit more kind of yeah. ruthlessly efficient. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So say, say you're approached by uh, someone to do a soundtrack. What's the kind of dream of the scenario? Like, who's the director? What's the film about? And what's the scenario for you in terms of creating a score? I have to say, I do love I love Brady Corbett's stuff. I love the childhood of a leader. I love Vox Lux. I think he's working on something else just now. Oh, I know. And, and actually, I was a bit disappointed by how like that everyone didn't go. Oh my god! You no, know, I get really it's... angry when people don't like. I know something that you feel is like really impacted in you. I know, and and it kind of slipped under the radar. But um, I mean, he's he's working on a new movie just now. So Brady, you know. Um, but it's, to me, it's something like that. Like the way Clint Mansell, you know, started working with Aronofsky. And I think it's important that you're kind of as one, you know, they, they were both students, I think. You know, I think Aronofsky's a film student. I think Clint just maybe was in New York at that point mm. after Pop Elite itself and, find, you know, trying to find something to kind of to move on his life with. And, and I love that like, coming together and being at a similar kind of stage where you, you have that meeting of minds. And, and I think like most people, you know, you, I'd love to do some really kind of avant-garde to start. You know, I think like most people, there's kind of like, there's a security in that and that you mm-hmm. can kind of, if anyone thinks it's rubbish, you're like, well, it's avant-garde. It doesn't matter, you know. <laughs> not, that, not that pie is particularly avant-garde, you know, it's, but it's intense, you know. Yeah. I love that. I love that, you know, symbiosis that that, that relationship would have. I feel like there's a few people that do that, like Johnny Greenwood and Paul Thomas Anderson have a lovely 
combination. Stephen Soderbergh and Cliff Martinez as well. That kind yes, of absolutely. yeah. Absolutely. And Cliff, yeah. and interesting because he comes obviously Cliff's coming from a band background as well. Clint's coming from a band background as well. So I think there's a there's an amazing kind of experience i think the live thing i think is something they really bring to it like almost that kind of energy that you get from being a performer live that they funnel into that emotional connection when they're writing i think you're right because i think that the experience of years of playing on stage and, and sharing your music that way does make you kind of inhabit the music in a different way you know like you, you've, you sense an energy inside the music that perhaps if you're only working in studios and things, there's maybe a, a slightly different, I'm not meaning a distance in it, just in a different way, there's a yeah. distance between you and the music. Whereas when you're playing songs every night, you're really inhabiting something. And, and it doesn't surprise me that, you know, someone like Clint, well, mind you, I mean, he was a, he was a rap, but, you know, he was rapping for Pop Elite itself. So maybe it's surprising how he's taken himself into the classical. But you're absolutely right. There's an understanding, I think, of the songs. Even Elfman with Oingo Boingo, you know, yeah. really, you know, came from that side. You've got... Um, as I say, sun even coming in and that. I mean, I, I love the sound of sun. I mean, if anyone out there hasn't heard the, the rock band Sun, please put it on. It's a monolith <laughs> of guitars. And, and I think there's, there is definitely something to that. And, and it's more, that's obviously a more modern thing. You know, you think back to Bernard Herrmann or something back in the day. It's yeah. like, it was much more composer, composer. And, and I just feel like the fact that everything's, there's no rules anymore. Maybe there never was, but maybe as I'm getting older, I'm realizing that, you know, because to me growing up, it was, you know, you've got this Spielberg movies and things, you know, and, and that's what you kind of, you know, it was John Hughes movies for me and Spielberg. So, yeah. you know, like those soundtracks, again, different ends of the spectrum. But to me, like the soundtrack of like a John Williams, you know, it had to have that. It had to be or orchestra. It had to yeah. be big. It had to be powerful. The theme needed to define the whole movie and the character. And I feel like over the last... I mean, as I say, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm only tuning into this in the last kind of 10, 15 years, but it feels like things are kind of that kind of deconstruction of things has taken place and, and it really appeals to me that yeah. even Zimmer combines with the Batman soundtracks, you know, combining the kind of oh, electronic yeah. and the industrial power of that with the strings, you know, it really, I, again, I'm sure someone could tell me that it's been done before, but that was the first time where I was like, well, yeah. the power in this, like the weight...
And again, Zimmer can he can work in a in a kind of song type, you know, structure. You know, some of his pieces are almost just are songs. You know, yeah. or just through the the filter of like an orchestra and, and stuff. And other stuff is just much more like Dunkirk. I feel was was something completely different. remember seven being one that had an amazing score and it really being kind of quite industrial and sort of the kind of tension and it was quite Hitchcockian as if that's even word. It was yeah it reminds me of like I mean Nine Inch Nails music or something you know it's it's so glitchy it's so like it it feels like something in your brain can scratching and that that was probably one of the first times where I was scared by a soundtrack you know it felt like it was coming from the, you know, the protagonist. It just felt like it was coming from the movie and coming yeah. out. Going, yeah, that stuck with me a lot, that, that movie as well. Have you seen um, God Only Knows, the the kind of almost two-part Brian Wilson film? I know no, you're no I haven't. So it's Paul Dano plays the young Brian Wilson. Oh, is it Love and Mercy? It's called, oh, is it called Yes, it's called Love and Mercy. Yeah, sorry, it is called Love and Mercy. Yeah. Cusack and Dano. Yeah, Cusack and Dano. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you seen that? I, I haven't seen it, actually. I should have seen it. It's another one of those films that, like you were saying, um, like Vox Lux, where it's like, why were not more people talking about it? Because it was a really interesting concept of kind of having the two eras of of Brian Wilson. And, um, yeah, I thought it was just really clever. And Atticus Ross did the composing side of it sort of thing. Something and I just thought it was, yeah. You know, I mean, again, they've kind of 
they've just took the game by the scruff of the neck this last decade. You know, they've soundtracked an awful lot of important stuff. what have you because i mean have you like everybody else been kind of diving into streaming services and your your drawer of dvds that you've not watched in years sort of thing exactly high brown high brown low brown we did a we did a week of nolan before we went to watch ten it was so exciting you know, it was just nice to be excited about going to the movies again you know it's we've all missed it so much and I, I, you know, I love sitting watching movies and streaming, but it's just the act of going to do it. it feels like an event. You're you, again, you engage in a different way. Yeah. But no, I'm, we're kind of we're kind of high brow, high brow, low brow. We watched it. I'm thinking of ending things. We, oh, is it good? I've not watched it yet with Jesse Buckley and. It's confounding. It's I needed. It's that way. I needed to read about it afterwards. The book. I think there's quite a big separation from what the book does. Ian reads novel and 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 Cowboy's movie, but yeah. I love Cynic Doki in New York. That that maybe really oh, affects me. I mean, I love the adaptation and things, but that, that really it stuck with me. I, I was reading a book at time actually about someone who who was recreating their life, like paying everyone in their apartment block to act so that he could feel like he had some control over his life. I forget what the book was, but I was reading that at a similar time to this movie came out, and they were just both like kind of melded in my brain, you know, into this wonderful. I was like, what's real, what's not here, you know? Loved it. I remember before I was why I watched who was it was that suggested I a rewatch I can never say it's Sin Sin somewhere near New York New York. <laughs> <laughs> but it was just like and, and it's that thing as well, you watch it and you go, Oh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, man, what a complete loss to the world as well. It's just like, oh man. It's the effortless like Again, as, I, as I'm getting older, I feel like I, you can tell who's the proper actors now, you know, because it's just, it's so effortless, you know. Yeah. I'm just saying, what other movies have you been watching? Have you been, what, what have you been watching, Needed? We have quite a lot of things. Um, the kids have kind of been dictating quite a lot of the stuff that we watched. We watched The Mandalorian, which I absolutely loved. I thought oh, it was... What an incredible piece of TV. Oh, wasn't it brilliant? And then it came with all these little galleries these little like behind the scenes making of things as well so there's like eight episodes of that so I mean I absolutely geeked out on that and thought the boys they wouldn't be it but they were absolutely lapping it up so it's kind of talking it's about Star Wars makes another generation absolutely yeah totally I've, I've done my job yeah. but uh, those were great and then things like it's because I'm doing interviews with some you know composers and stuff and and directors and whatnot it's kind of lovely because you sit down and you look at the list of films you go what am I going to have time to watch and stuff so it was really funny with Harry for example we like rewatched the first couple of Shrek films and oh my god I'd forgotten how much fun they were it was just like ah but it's that kind of thing where I would normally 
you know, sit down and go, let's watch Shrek tonight. One and two. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the, it's nice. So like, I, I'm like, I, I like to have a reason to be watching a movie, you know, which is why if there's a new movie coming out, like, you know, the, the Brady Corbett new ones, maybe yeah. go back and rewatch over and over. And, and it's just things like that, like Villeneuve's Dune coming out. Oh, you know, with June. Oh. Arrival, you know, and I, I think it's really exciting what he's doing as a filmmaker. Again, his... I think he worked with Johansson. Yeah, that arrival score was just... Oh, no. that director sound you know composer like they need to understand each other for it to really come together you know it's as much about that relationship as understanding even necessarily the work I believe it's it's a reason that people directors do keep coming back to the same person when they can trust that because it's it's almost 50 percent of the of the movie you know because I tell you what Stephen you notice if something is a bad soundtrack that's you you notice that really really quickly as well and the change into what's kind of right or wrong but but sometimes you know like we when we were making our record like rich costi our producer has a big projector so we'd put on like a bunch oh do you i love that we just put on a movies just in loop you know so i mean we had we had kiyatsky on you know like which is because it's all about the soundtrack but just watching those the the views the cityscapes and everything just inspiring putting on like hitchcock movies and there's just something about the visual, even when we were making our own record, I, I, I take a lot of visual kind of stimulation. Yeah. And, and it just kind of takes you out of your comfort zone. It just makes you like view time differently. It makes you view, I don't know, there's just something really, I find really inspiring. Yeah. About it, you know, because there's a couple of people we work with. There's a guy that plays all our piano in our records called Jamie Mohobrick. He's a wonderful player. And he's always got the most extreme horror movies on. You know, like, like you know, Tartan Extreme. Remember Tartan Extreme? But, you know, I'm sure it's become something else since. But, you know, just all these kind of, like, really obscene, like, underground. You know, a lot of them are kind of, you know, Asian movies kind of thing. Yeah. A lot of, you know, like, some weird Takeshi Miki movies. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. And sometimes, you know, it's it's too much for me that, you know, so I found, I found my line, you know, I found my line <laughs> and then just being completely distracted or feeling slightly unsettled, you know. <laughs> Do you think that that stretches to the kind of physical um, influence and stuff? Because you, you've recorded quite a lot in LA and LA's got this kind of amazing aesthetic to it, both in terms of in reality, but also how it's portrayed on screen, you know, things like To Live and Die in LA or like, uh, or Drive or something like that, you know, in terms of the kind of, 
the yeah the sort of not just the landscape but the kind of colors and the neon and all that kind of stuff does that feed in if you're recording in somewhere like LA then Dave, I mean, like, you know, where it's like the light in LA is, is unlike anywhere. I mean, all of California pretty much, but LA specifically, the light, it, you feel like you're in a movie the whole time. Every corner you turn, there's like a spot from a movie you've loved or you're seeing, you know, Danovich has worked in some place, you know, or like, you know, Lucas has filmed here, you know, and, you know, obviously it is the, the Hollywood is the, the kind of home of movies. I, I don't know if, you know, I think that's probably undebatable now. Even though Bollywood, Bollywood's a bigger, actually a bigger kind of yeah. place. You make more movies and I think it's worth more money, but you'd say creatively maybe. And there, there's something, I love the the strength of ambition there and the feeling that you can achieve anything and like anything's possible, anything's achievable. You can reach the stars if you really want to. And, and coming from Scotland and being from a cynical part of the world, <laughs> which, I, which I like to inform my music. I like my music to be slightly, to be cynical and, uh-huh. and but see, when I'm making it and recording it, I want it to, to feel and be as amazing and beautiful and big as it could be. So being in that part of the world definitely feeds into our music. And, and it's, it's interesting because I've, I've been lucky enough to do like a lot of kind of, you know, meet a lot of kind of film music producers and supervisors and things. And it's really interesting to see how the, the TV business works and how the movie business works. And it's a very, it's a very tough thing to get into which is why I think it's so important to, to forge a relationship, an artistic relationship, because it's the same as anything. If you're just trying to find, plant yourself into a world with no actual, nothing to kind of grab a hold of, mm. then it can be tough. But every time I'm out there, I just, I think next time, next time I'm going to come here with, you know, something up my sleeve, you know. <laughs> yeah. I'm not even scared of the thought of having worked on Balance Not Symmetry. It's, it's, and seeing a movie getting built, made from top to bottom, all it takes it's a lot of work, but it's not. It's not something that I would um, would be quite as intimidated about, you know, yeah. as, as maybe it would it would have been ten years ago. You yeah. know, I feel, I feel it'd be achievable if you have that, but if you know what you're wanting to to actually create, the yeah. same as anything. If you have a vision, you can make it happen. You know, yeah. I always do that. But people, when people say to me, "Oh, have you been in a band for so long and stuff?" and it's like, enjoy what you do. Make sure you're what you're working on and you're creating needs to kind of give you some form of joy back, or else yeah. it's just work and you just feel that you've been giving 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 you know and needs to nourish you your your work I think and also that thing that you know go back to what we we're saying about what you do with the visuals for the record and the 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 videos and stuff as well is like by the creative process of of looking at a video you know as a different thing to the song in a way it it gives it another life and it gives you another opportunity to explore a different version so to speak as well so you're yeah. const- it's constantly evolving really isn't it well, exactly. I mean, we our video for Mountains, we based on El Topo, the Jodorowsky movie, you know, which you can tell if you, when you see the two protagonists fighting in that video. We did our video for Victory Over the Sun was, I, I just watched Marthy, Martha Marcy. Macy May. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> M-M-M-M-M. And, uh, and, and, like, we wanted to, like, rep- replicate the feeling of that and the, the tension and the kind of, like, sinister nature of that, but the reliance and then, and then we do some videos that are just all about the kind of almost like a piece of art that's kind of come to life. Like we did a video for a song recently called Instant History and it was meant to be like, like almost like a, a painting yeah. that's coming to life and kind of freaking you out a bit. Dear God, adjust my dreams for me. All I learn is instant history. Is this how? 
think it's, you know, we're, we're lucky. We did a video called God and Satan with a wonderful director called Corin Hardy. And he's, he's he actually just worked in Gangs of London, which is a wonderful TV Great. show. And really, I mean, one of the most creative and most exciting TV shows I think I've ever seen. And he did a, he did one in which he came up with this beautiful kind of little story for our, for that video. And, it, and that's probably one of my favorite videos we've ever made, even 10 years on. You can tell that he was a, there's, there's a reason he's become a movie director and a TV director, because when I look back on that, just the way he, things translated through the screen, it, it just did such a romance. You know, he was seeing things, you know, because you're standing there looking at the same thing that a director is or something, but they're just seeing it in this whole different way, you know, and you're yeah. like, well, you quite see what you're seeing and you see it through the lens. You're like, oh my God, you know, and yeah. I love that. I love that, you know, it's, I love that about music as well, you know, yeah. that, I mean, that's the excitement of creating anything is, is not, not quite knowing what's going to be the other end of it. But, um, and then yeah. also because then once it's unleashed, it's not yours anymore. It doesn't belong to you and everybody else who watches or listens to it has their own interpretation. Exactly. I tell you what, I'm rubbish at that. Though. I end up, when people ask me what songs are about, I'm like, <laughs> oh, it's about this. It's about this. And then I'm like, oh, why do you do that, Simon? You just like ruined everyone's dream that it might have been about that. You know, that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, yeah. I mean, you're an interviewer's dream then, because normally when you ask bands about what does it mean, and they were, oh, just, you know, it's like, oh, get over yourself and I answer the question. Hold my water. I need to learn to hold my water. <laughs> no, don't, don't ever change. Don't ever change. <laughs> Listen, it's it's really lovely to chat to you on a kind of you know sort of broader scale and talking about film and stuff. And it's it's I mean, it's very clear that you're a massive sort of fan of film and the creative process as well. And I think that you know the the kind of the future of I hope that there's a future in there for for you kind of exploring that world of soundtracking because um because I think it'd be really exciting to see what you know where you could take it as well so yeah thanks so much yeah I, love, I mean I've, I started playing music on my violin and things so I came from like playing in orchestras and things and and as I'm getting older I'm, I'm revisiting that and I'm you know I'm I'm definitely feel like I'm hitting the next kind of chapter of my life that I'm like, I really want to engage in music in a different way. Yeah. Um, but as I, as I said earlier, you can't force these things, you know, it's about finding someone and, and I feel lucky to have worked with Jamie Adams, who, who is a wonderful director. He's made some great movies and, and Corin as well. So, you know, you never know what's around the corner, but yeah. I'm really, it's just inspiration. Inspirations change throughout your life, don't they? And, yeah. You know, and, as much as I want to stand on a stage and rock the fuck out for the rest of my life, I still, you know, I want to be able to do, step out, step aside a little, you know, and get my get my piano going, you know, if need be. <laughs> Thank you. I really, I've loved talking to you. It's Aww. lovely to talk about something that, as much as I love music, talk about things, a passion that isn't just music as well. Yeah, know? yeah, totally. It's so nice to chat to you, Simon. Thank you so much, love. You take care and give my love to the boys, will you please? I will. So. Yeah. So, all right, take care. I'll speak to you soon. Bye, love. Bye. Thank you. I talk to God as much as I talk to Satan cause I want to hear both sides. Does that make me cynical? There are no miracles and this is no miraculous life. I savor hate as much as I crave love because I'm just a twisted guy. Is this the pinnacle? Is this the pinnacle? The pinnacle of being alive? Now I see the light. Well, I look up to God, but I see trouble, cause this ain't a miracle. 
spawned his favourite video, That's God and Satan by the brilliant Biffy Clyro, rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with Simon Neal. My huge thanks to Simon for taking the time to talk to us. Their new album, Celebration of Endings, is out now. You should definitely check out Jamie Adams' film, Balance Not Symmetry, and you might also want to check out some of the videos he mentioned on YouTube. And whilst you're there, look up our channel where I put together a regular show as a companion piece to the podcast. In fact, this week I just posted up a special with Ron Howard and a lady called Michelle John, who is a resident of a town called Paradise in California that back in 2018 was hit by the most tragic fires. The documentary is the most brilliant story and it's called Rebuilding Paradise. And you can see me chat to Ron and Michelle about that over on our YouTube channel. Head to edithbowman.com to catch up with all of our previous episodes and find us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK. Next up, really excited because I'm a huge fan of Craig Roberts, who I first got to know in Richard Ayoade's film Submarine, as he played one of the leads. Craig has gone on as an actor to appear in so many brilliant productions, but he's also developed a brilliant skill as a writer and a director. And his latest film, Eternal Beauty, stars Sally Hawkins and is loosely based on Craig's own aunt. It is a wonderful film and I had the most brilliant time chatting to Craig about it, which you can hear next week. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. 